morning, church. I would want to introduce myself as Bonang from North, North Vague Life Crew. And the reading for today is taken from Hebrews, um, chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 13, um, verse 1 to 6. And it reads as follows. Let the brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels and our ways. Remember those who are in prison, as though you are in prison of them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your, life, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can men do to me? This is the word of God. Won't you just bow in a word of prayer before we come to that text? Heavenly Father, as always, we desperately need to hear you speak to us this morning. There is nothing we need more. Uh, we need you, Lord. And so we pray that you will give us the ears to hear. Open our blind eyes. Soften our hard hearts. Help us to receive this word, Lord. Will you um, frustrate the evil one as he seeks to snatch it away before it takes root? Will you help us to cast aside the anxieties of living in this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, uh, trouble or persecution, all the things, Lord, that uh, frustrate the growth of your word in our lives. We pray that this word will find fertile soil, that it will be pressed deep within our souls by your spirit, and that it will produce a harvest in our midst for which we can forever praise you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage is a classic example of the kind of moral do's and don'ts that Christians are famous for. Maybe infamous is a better word. You know the story. The story goes, Christians are good people, and these are the kinds of things you have to do if you're going to be a Christian. Or maybe Christians are better known for the things they don't do. Uh, so the story goes, Christians are clean living, a little uptight often quite judgy, prone to not having much fun. In fact, Christians trade fun for being good. And this kind of list is proof of exactly that, the list that Bonang just read for us. Proof of exactly that. To read it that way is very superficial. In fact, that's just to misread it completely. Remember what the letter to the Hebrews is. A letter to the Hebrews is essentially a sermon. And the preacher is calling his people to a new way of life. Now, I think if we approach this text with an open mind, what we're going to find is that the quality of that life is very, very attractive. It's very appealing. So what does he call them to? At least these four things. Integrity, fidelity, contentment, and worship. Those four, fidelity, sorry, integrity, fidelity, contentment, and worship. Now, if that list doesn't excite you, 
Just suspend judgment. Let's keep an open mind and let's see. First, integrity. Where do we get that? Because the word clearly doesn't appear in our passage anywhere. What I want you to notice is that the first three verses, and if you remember five weeks ago, Eddie preached on those first three verses. And then we took a break through August to do our Encounters with Jesus series. Now we're back in Hebrews, and we're looking at that same section. Those first three verses were all about social interaction. They were concerned with how you conduct yourself in public life, how you treat others. But the second three are all about how you conduct yourself in your private life. And not just in your private life, but the deep privacy of your inner life. These last three verses are concerned with the deepest desires of your heart. So we have the first half of the list dealing with public life, and we have the second half dealing with private life. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that in the Christian life, it's never one or the other. It isn't a choice between private piety or social morality. It's always both. The Christian life is a call to integrity, to wholeness of being. That's a unique call. Because I don't need to tell you most moral systems, in most moral systems, people are judged by their behavior. The gospel presses deeper. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned with motives and desires. And the Christian life is a call to live from the inside out. From the inside out. Not just with the outside. It's not just concerned with the outside. It's a call to live from the inside out. Our Lord Jesus himself was very clear on this. So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, the innermost center of the person, the innermost being of the person. It comes from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart, the innermost being, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, the external things, these do not defile anyone. It's the state of the heart, the state of the heart that matters. If the heart is in a healthy state, the behavior that comes out of that heart will be healthy. There will be integrity between what's going on inside and what's happening outside, or what's happening outside and what's actually going on underneath. Integrity. Both will be healthy. But if the heart is corrupt, well then, either the behavior is going to be openly corrupt, or, and this was Jesus' prime concern, the behavior will be moral. But that morality will just be masking the true corruption in the heart. Instead of integrity, what you get is hypocrisy. And the witness of the New Testament is that Jesus 
biggest fight in his ministry was with hypocrisy. Those whose private lives didn't match their public performance. Those who pretended and projected. Those who were one thing on Insta, but another thing in reality. Another thing altogether. Walt Disney once said, I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things that Walt Disney wouldn't do. Walt Disney doesn't smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney doesn't drink. I drink. That's first level hypocrisy. But the hypocrisy Jesus was opposed to goes one step further than that. Not only does it pretend to be righteous, it also judges those who are obviously unrighteous. Hypocrisy shames the prostitute in the marketplace and then goes home to the bed of his mistress. Hypocrisy shuns the tax collector from the synagogue and then extorts tithes from the poor for his own pocket. Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels, you know, you all know Gulliver's Travels? We've all heard of it. He gives us a sketch of this kind of hypocrisy. This is what he writes. An entertainer in Leicester Fields had drawn a huge assembly around him. Among the rest, a fat, unwieldy fellow, half stifled in the press, would at every turn be crying out, Lord, what a filthy crowd is here. Pray, good people, give way a little. What devil has raked this rabble together? What squeezing is this? Honest friend, remove your elbow. At last, a weaver who stood next to him could hold no longer. A plague confound you, said he. Who in the devil's name, I wonder, helps to make up the crowd half so much as yourself? Don't you consider that you take up more room with that carcass than any five here? Is not the place as free for us as it is for you? Bring your own guts into a reasonable compass, and then I'll wager we shall have room enough for us all. You see, hypocrisy is a large man in a crowd shouting at others to make space. You are not stuck in a crowd. You are the crowd. Hypocrisy chooses to ignore that. We all hate hypocrites. And that's perfect proof that we are hypocrites. The call of the Christian life is a call to a good life. But that goodness is not for PR purposes. It's from the inside out. And it's also a goodness that begins... And never departs from recognizing that I am not good on the inside. That out of my own heart comes all sorts of evil. It's a goodness rooted in the humility that can see its desperate need for help. The kind of help that can only come from our Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't pretend otherwise. It doesn't pretend that it doesn't need his help. The Christian life is a call to that sort of integrity. And I'm hoping by now we can all agree that it's a call to the good life. That that sort of integrity, that sort of freedom is a wonderful thing. If you can get it. We'll say more on that in a moment. First, integrity. Next, the preacher deals with perhaps 
the two most powerful threats to integrity in our lives. Sex and money. In the area of sex, he calls for fidelity. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, by all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Monogamous fidelity, that's the core. One man, one woman, for life. The first thing we want to notice is that the call to fidelity is made to the whole community. Do you see it's a corporate concern? Let marriage be held in honor by all. Marriage is a precious institution and God wants the whole community to treat it as such. We are all responsible for the health of our marriages in this church. And that means if you are doing anything, anything to undermine a marriage, the health of a marriage in this church, either your own or somebody else's, you need to stop. And you need to stop now. Because God Almighty, who will judge us, takes marriage very seriously. But putting it positively, we need to help each other on a marriage. We need to help each other. Single people can serve married people. Married people can serve each other in this space. Older couples can serve younger couples by imparting their wisdom on all the things that tend to trip us up in marriage. All the usual suspects. Finances, sex, extended family, children, and so on and so on. The point is, none of us should take marriage lightly. None of us. Why do we need to say this? Well, because although God honors marriage and calls us to do the same, our culture doesn't. And in many ways, we are children of our culture. Right? It's the air we breathe. So we are swimming against a great tide in this area. Verse 4 says, God will judge the sexually immoral. Our culture is not sexually immoral. Our culture is sexually amoral. In other words, there are no rules. There are no rules left. It's a free-for-all. Well, it's not quite true, is it? There might be one rule left. No pedophilia. Right? That one rule. No pedophilia. But can I tell you, and perhaps I don't even need to tell you, in fact, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, even that rule is increasingly under challenge is fast eroding. I remember a conversation, and this must be at least a year ago, between Eusebius MacKaiser, remember the talk show host, used to be 702, Eusebius MacKaiser, and Dr. Eve, our local sex expert, on treating a pedophile. How would she treat a pedophile? Well, it emerged in the conversation, her approach was to help the pedophile understand that this was his normal, and then help him manage that normal. That was her approach. So let's just think through the implications of that together, right? In a world where you do you is the golden rule, how long are we going to be able to deny the golden rule to pedophiles? How long can we claim that you do you applies to everyone else except them? You heard Dr. Eve. That's their normal. 
if you are supposed to define your own identity and if denying anyone that identity is the unforgivable sin, and it is in our culture, if denying anyone that identity is the unforgivable sin, how long are we going to be able to deny that same right to pedophiles? And since Freud argued that human beings are sexual beings from infancy, that's what he argued, why should intergenerational love be ruled out? Love is love, isn't it? Isn't that one of the mantras of our culture? Love is love. Now, I'm sorry if what I'm saying is disturbing, but that's where we are as a culture, and we need to face up to the reality. And you can see, it's another planet, it's another universe from verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor by all. One man, one woman, for life. Let that be held in honor by the whole community. And let the marriage bed be kept pure. The Christian call in a world that is completely amoral in this space is to a corporate communal honoring of sex within marriage. The next thing we want to see is that one way or another, sex is an act of worship. Look at verse 4. It uses the language of temple worship. It uses the language of ritual purity. Let marriage, let the marriage bed be undefiled, or in some translations, let the marriage bed be kept pure. That's the language of temple worship. Sex is an act of worship in the Christian life. It's an act of worship in the Christian life. Firstly, because as we know, when we read the wider New Testament, all of life is to be considered worship. When it is lived unto the Lord in his presence, by his grace, all of life is worship. So sex is an act of worship. Secondly, sex is an act of worship in the Christian life because marriage, and you can read about this in Ephesians 5, and I encourage you to do that, the second half of Ephesians 5, marriage and within marriage sex is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. How so? Self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Our culture also worships sex, but not in that way. In fact, in a way that is probably the complete opposite. Whereas in the Christian life, the call is to self-sacrificial, self-giving love, and sex is just one expression of that. In our culture, sex is an act of self-gratification, self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-glory. Sex is the sacrifice of the other to myself. There's an anthropologist by the name of Ernest Becker, and he explains how we got from the Christian act of worship to the cultural act of worship. This is what he writes. After the death of God, modern man still needed to feel heroic, to know his life mattered in the scheme of things. He had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and gratitude. If he no longer had God, how was he going to do this? The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in his love partner. You hear that? It's an act of worship. Journalist Malcolm Muggeridge says the same thing just in fewer words. He writes this, if God is dead, someone's going to have to take his place. 
It'll either be megalomania or it'll be erotomania. The drive for power or the drive for pleasure. The clenched fist or the phallus. Hitler or Hugh Hefner. You either worship sex itself or you worship God. And sex within marriage is part of a whole life lived in worship of God. Of course, we are called to worship God, and therefore we will enjoy sex within the bounds of marriage, the bounds that he has laid out for us. Now, why does he want it that way? Why the boundaries? For one, as we've said, it's a picture of the gospel. Self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Unconditional, committed love. But beyond that, God is loving. He's a loving heavenly father and he wants the best for his children. The boundaries he gives us are not there to withhold good things from us. They are always, always there to preserve and promote the good life. Now let me quote from a 2016 article on marriage in Time magazine to try and illustrate this. To try and illustrate the fact that the boundaries God gives us are there for our flourishing. They're there for our flourishing. Bear in mind, Time magazine is not a mouthpiece for the Christian worldview, okay? You don't get much more secular than Time magazine. This is what they write. The evidence keeps piling up that few things are as good for life, limb, and liquidity as staying married. Then the article goes on to quote a social scientist who did extensive research amongst elderly couples, and this was his conclusion. Couples who have made it all the way into later life have found it to be a peak experience, a sublime experience, to be together. Everybody in the survey, 100%, said that long marriage was the best thing in their lives. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to be hearing this. The point is not that if you don't live up to this ideal, you are somehow a second-class Christian. Okay, that is not the point. All of us fall short of the core. All of us, divorced, single, married. All of us make a mess of our relationships. All of us need grace. All of us can only live in and from the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us. My point, the witness of the scriptures and the witness of secular research is simply this. In giving us the boundaries he gives us, God is giving us the good life. He's giving us the good life. He puts boundaries in place so that we flourish. When it comes to sex, God is calling us to fidelity. When it comes to money, he calls us to contentment. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The opposite of contentment is the love of money or greed. Now in our middle class setting, greed is a silent assassin. How often do we confess our greed? 
That's one indicator, isn't it? In fact, we don't see our love of money as greed. We don't even see it as greed. We see it as simply wanting what we deserve for our hard work. We see it as healthy ambition. We see it as wanting what my neighbor has because, well, if, if he has it, well, why shouldn't I have it? In our setting, the opposite of contentment is a spirit of entitlement. And it is invisible. We don't see it. So one pastor tells the story of how he organized a set of men's breakfasts. Okay, so the, 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 the series was structured around the seven deadly sins. So seven breakfasts, one for each deadly sin. And as he's setting it up, his wife, uh, with, with the intuition that only wives, wives have, says to, says to him, she says to him, I know exactly which one is going to be poorly attended. The one on greed. And of course she was right. The gents piled into the talks on lust and anger and pride, but the talk on greed was empty. Nobody thinks they are greedy. Let me rephrase that. Nobody wants to admit they are greedy. The love of money is a silent assassin. We don't even see it because we desperately don't want to. There are none so blind as those who will not see. But we need to see. Because once again, the love of money is an act of worship. So even Nietzsche, that 20th century Polish philosopher who led the death of God movement, even he saw this. He saw that the love of money is an act of worship that replaces the worship of God. Listen to what he writes. What induces one man to use false weights and another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of the upper classes live in legalized fraud? Does it sound familiar? What gives rise to all this? It's not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious. But they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly, and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money. The love of money is an act of worship. Even Nietzsche could see it. Now most of us would say, and let's be honest with ourselves here this morning, most of us would say, I don't worship money. I just want a little more. If that's you, and I hazard a guess it's pretty much most of us, if that's you, you're in good company. Most billionaires say exactly the same thing. As one tech millionaire put it, there's never some omega point, some end point. People who get to that point don't stop when they get there. They simply can't stop. They derive transcendent meaning from money. Without their money, what else would they have? And his opinion is, is confirmed by the research. So there's a Harvard study of 4,000 millionaires, U.S. dollar millionaires, and it showed that those with $8 million or more are no happier than those with $1 million. Eight times the net worth, no happier. Why? Well, one of the reasons that is what the sociologists call the relative income hypothesis. Fancy way of saying we like to keep up with the Kamalas. Right? 
In fact, our contentment is linked to what our neighbors have. It's anchored in what our neighbors have rather than what we need. So I can be worth $8 million and still be miserable. Why? My neighbor has $10 million. Now the Apostle Paul, I'm sure you can imagine, he has something else to say. He openly rejects the relative income hypothesis. He's not interested in what the Kamalos have. He says to us this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 8, If you have food and clothing, be content with that. Food and clothing. Do you see he's not measuring our contentment in relative terms. He's not saying it depends on what others have. No, it's absolute terms, food and clothing. That's everyone in this room. Perhaps almost everyone. Are we content with what we have? To say, I don't love money, I just want a little more, is a very dangerous thing to say. Because wanting just a little more is exactly what the love of money is. And the Lord Jesus cannot be clearer on this thing. He cannot be clearer. You cannot love both God and money. It's one or the other. We try and bring them together. He's crystal clear. You cannot love both God and money. More than that, when all we want is just a little more, we will always want it. A little more only feeds the desire for a little more. You never arrive. You're never satisfied. The appetite only grows. The more money we throw into this bottomless pit, the deeper it sinks. It never gives you what it promises. And again, it's the secular research that bears this out. Right? What the scriptures have been saying for thousands of years, we find in the New York Times. They did a survey of the research. And what they found is that the super rich, now they're talking about US dollar billionaires, tend to work longer hours, feel more isolated, have fewer friends, and have live with higher levels of anxiety than the ordinary citizen. In short, their money doesn't make them happy. And they are U.S. dollar billionaires. But we still believe the lie. We still insist that it will make me happy. Just a little more. If I just had a little more. Or we can receive the witness of the scriptures. We can be content with what we have. And we can find our happiness elsewhere. The preacher's call is to a life of integrity, fidelity, and contentment. But notice that his call to all of those things are based on an underlying call, a deeper call, to worship. So did you notice that both the call to fidelity in the area of sex and the call to contentment in the area of money were rooted in something else? The preacher doesn't say be faithful because extramarital sex is bad. Uh, be content because greed is against the rules. He doesn't say these are the rules, now follow them. No, he roots all of these calls in our relationship with God. 
So in verse 4, we should honor marriage because God is our judge. In verses 5 and 6, we should be content with what we have because God is our faithful, loving provider. The Lord is my helper. What motivates us? Do you see the motive structure here? In answering this call, what motivates us is our relationship with God. Instead of the false worship of sex and money, the preacher is calling us to the true worship of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name into which we were baptizing this morning. And when we looked at sex and money just a moment ago, we saw this plain fact. The plain fact that we are incurable worshippers. We will worship something. Why is that? Well, we hinted at an answer. It's because we feel our smallness. We feel our weakness, our mortality, and it terrifies us. It terrifies us. We don't like it. We deny it. We compensate for it. We try and escape it by attaching ourselves to something else that we think is transcendent. So even our tech millionaire used the word. Money is where we derive transcendent meaning. In other words, we're looking for God and we look to money to play that role. Now what's very important, we must avoid a very common mistake in this area. What we need to see is that the problem is not pleasure. Okay, as if God doesn't want to catch us enjoying ourselves, and if he does, that's not it. On the contrary, as Paul Tripp writes, you couldn't escape pleasure if you tried. Do you know why? There's only one answer. Because God wanted it that way. With wisdom and purpose, he created a world that is stuffed to overflowing with pleasures of every kind. Those pleasures are not an accident. Those pleasures are not a test or a trap. They are not the problem. In fact, if we handle pleasures properly, they become part of the solution. Here's trip again. Pleasures exist to stimulate worship. Not of the thing, but of the one who created the thing. The glory of every form of pleasure is meant to point me to the glory of God. See, our problem is that, and this gets to the nub of our problem, we reverse that process. Okay? So earthly pleasures are supposed to be a means to an end. And the end is God himself. God is our ultimate pleasure and our ultimate treasure. What we do is we reverse that. We stick it in reverse so that God becomes a means to another end. And that end is earthly pleasure. Do you see what we do? We use God to get what we want in this life. And that's our problem. We, what we want is our true God. The God of the Bible, he's just there to help us get it. God is there to get more money, better relationships, better sex. He's the means to the end of earthly pleasure. Now what happens when we do that? 
when we reverse the relationship between God and earthly pleasures, what happens is we lose both. We end up losing both. God is no longer God because what you worship is your true God. So God is no longer God. And the pleasure we worship ceases to be pleasure. It becomes a cruel slave master. Ask an alcoholic if they enjoy alcohol. I'm not sure enjoy is the word they would use. They crave it. They have a frenzied desire for it. They obsess over it. They must have it. But it's been a long, long time since they last enjoyed it. It owns them. Pleasures are only a problem when we make them our home, our destination. They're never meant to be that. They were never meant to be that. They were merely signposts pointing us home to our true destination, our true home, our true object of worship. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us which, when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And that something is, of course, someone, God himself, God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Christ and by his Spirit, we have God. That's the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews. The whole point is that Jesus is better. He's better. You see, an idol can't just be Removed. Remember, we are incurable worshippers. An idol needs to be replaced. And it needs to be replaced with something better. Otherwise, you will just return to that idol. It is only the beauty, the power, the comfort, the security that are ours in Christ that are ever going to be enough to dethrone the idols of sex and money in our lives. It's only when we are confronted with Jesus and we finally see him as he truly is that sex and money will take their proper place at the feet of the king. They are mere signposts to the ultimate object of our worship. The only object of worship that can satisfy in any true, full, and lasting sense is God himself. We close with this. The preacher is calling us to a life of integrity, fidelity, contentment, and worship. 
How are we ever going to answer that call? Because remember, we are not stuck in the crowd. We are the crowd. How are we ever going to answer that call? In Jesus, we have the man of integrity. The only person ever who has no gap between what he is on the outside and what he is on the inside. The only person ever who has no gap between what is and what ought to be. And his integrity exposes our hypocrisy. It shows, us, shows up our hypocrisy for what it is and all of its ugliness and our need to approach God through him and only through him. His integrity stands in the place of our hypocrisy in the presence of God so that we can have access to the Father. That's integrity. Let's think about fidelity. In his fidelity, he exposes all of our fickleness and our infidelity to one another, to God and to one another. But he, he died for his enemies. That's the height of faithfulness. That kind of love moves us in all of our relationships, but let's think of marriage for a moment. It moves us to love our marriage partner, especially, especially when they don't deserve it. He was utterly content. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had no place to call home, and yet he rested completely in his father's love. Utter contentment. He died naked, in total poverty, so that you and I might become rich, have access to all the riches of heaven. Now, if we have him, what else do we need? Truly, what else could we possibly want if we have him? The status, the security that we think we're going to get from sex and money, we're only ever going to find it in him. He gives us freely, deepest intimacy of the kind we will never have in any human relationship. And he gives us freely the riches of heaven. You see, our passage is not a list, just a mere list of do's and don'ts. This is a picture of the life that flows from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is a picture of what your life will look like in increasing measure as you increasingly realize the depth and the breadth and the height of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. It's a vision of the good life lived from the inside out when the inside is dominated by this one glorious truth. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we long, we long to have the desires of our hearts changed. They need changing, Lord. Please change them. We long to have the desires of our hearts changed so that we might truly worship you and you alone. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. 
Help us to experience his self-sacrificial servant love for ourselves in the depths of our hearts. Help us to taste that he is better. Move us by your spirit into a clear vision of the cross and the life of pure worship that follows. And it's only in his name that we could ever hope to pray these prayers. Amen.